Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Matt Matern. How are you doing? I am doing great. Um, you know, I, I must uh, kind of just correct the record. Um, you know, traditionally, my last name was pronounced Mattern, and I, and I didn't ever say anything because uh, it can be pronounced in different ways. If we were in France, uh, you probably would go with the Matern. How should I say it? Uh, Mattern. Mattern. Okay, Matt Mattern. Thank you for getting that right. As with someone, as someone with an oft mispronounced last name, I appreciate the the being corrected. Sorry about that, but you know, just wanted to set it straight. So, thank you. Anyway, great to be on the show, Josh. Thanks for inviting me again. And I think that since the last time you've been doing something, and before, and I'm curious what you've done and how it's gone. Before getting into that, the real root of it no pun intended, is uh, what the environment meant to you and the emotions that you felt. Do you remember what you described of an experience in nature or an experience of what the environment meant to you? Right. I, I was describing this um, being in the sequoias up in central California by up by Big Sur and this circle of amazing trees that the uh, Native Americans had had gone to have ceremonies and just feeling this connectedness and this peace and uh, this kind of energy that's hard to describe, but yet um, kind of real. And did you act on the, so you committed to something. Do you, can you remind us what you committed to and um, what it was to bring out in you? Uh, I committed to planting a tree at least, and I did do that and went out and bought a couple of trees, which I planted. And then I also volunteered at an organization that, that uh, plants trees. And we planted uh, three trees just a few days ago, an oak tree and two other trees in a high school that kind of promotes sustainability and and uh ecology here in in the LA area. And and that's something you wouldn't have done otherwise. I don't think I would have. I mean, not that I'm against planting trees, but I think it was definitely an impetus to get me out there and and doing it and and along the way I've kind of connected with a number of people uh, out of that um the people who were planting the trees are have done a lot of gardens around uh, Southern California and are greatly into kind of creating a sustainable agriculture space here and in lower income areas. And uh, so I'm really gr I'm grateful that uh, you kind of urged me to do it because now I've, I'm connecting more with my community. Got invited to a nice party, a garden party of somebody who's a one of the leading kind of gardeners and botanists here in the area. So, um, and her cousin started tree people. So there you have it. It's growing. Now I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but you said that you're grateful. It connected with, with community. You went to a party. I think most people, when they talk about doing something for the environment, it doesn't tend to be like, oh, that's something I'm that that they anticipate. I don't think most people think, oh, that's something I'm going to feel grateful about. Yeah, I can't. I can say that my 
my personal experience is that I wanted to do things and to help, but I guess I was stuck in um, the lethargy of of not doing and and just taking that first step. Um, I was I couldn't move really. It was kind of like kryptonite, and then after taking the first step, you start moving. You're like, oh, I can do this, and and I think everybody wants to contribute. And it's really kind of up to all of us to to encourage our friends, neighbors, um, family to to engage because we all want to do it. And to the extent we hold ourselves back or um, that's not a good feeling. It's a feeling of being kind of stifled. What was the emotional experience that you had over this? And not just while planting the tree, but from our last conversation to, I mean, it took some planning. You couldn't just do it right away. So there was a lot of pause in between when you committed to doing it to when you were actually physically doing things. Although there, there, I, it sounds like there were phone calls or visits to, to arboretums or stores. What was the emotional journey like? I think the emotional journey is, is getting in touch with, with the, uh, people who are doing things that I want to be part of. And, and that's getting a little bit out of the comfort zone because it's easy to kind of uh, be in my own space and not connect with other people. And yet, um, so it, so it felt really good to stretch myself in lots of different ways to say, Hey, I'm going to connect with my community. I'm going to do things that are not as comfortable, but they, at the end of the day, it's like going to a workout. You feel so much better after you've done it. So when you say feel good or feel better, is it satisfaction, achievement, happy, joy, or like what's, can you name the emotion or emotions? I would say it's a, it's a range of things. I mean, you have a certain degree of happiness and connecting with other people and getting to know them is, is fulfilling. And then there's, I think the, the sense of getting closer to who I would like to be as a person, which is deeply satisfying to, to sense that I'm taking a step along the path that I've always wanted to take to be uh, more in alignment with who I want it to be. See, that alignment is what the Spodic method is about. It, what it's really about is intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. And when I talked to, like you talked earlier, you, you talked about encouraging people to do things. Or you felt encouraged, I think. I didn't encourage you in the sense of like, you can do it or like, I wouldn't know what, until I asked you, I wouldn't know what motivated you. I wouldn't know about your experience in Big Sur. And I couldn't guess at it. And even if I did guess at it, it would be weird if I got it right without you ever having told me or the emotions that you felt there. So what I try to do is to evoke the person, to bring the person to an experience and evoke the motivations that are there already in the person and to give them a way to activate those in their lives. So when you talked about it being um, something that um, I forget how you put it. it. Not resonated with you, but uh, consistent with your values. How did you put it? 
you know, you've got it on tape somewhere. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but it's like um, something central to your core, something. Right. Who I'd like to be, who, who I've, you know, kind of my vision of my highest and best self type of uh, approach. What I find is that everyone has intrinsic motivation for the environment, but it's unique to that person. And until they get to share it in a su supportive, non-judgmental context, so that they're not going to feel judged or, or whatever, then everyone has that. What I'm trying to do is not... All right, I, I have to be careful because whenever I say what I do, everyone's like, well, you're not doing X. Well, I, I'm not not doing other things because I guess what I've been saying is top down, bottom up, everywhere, all at once, starting here and now, me and you. Uh, but one of the main things that I do is I focus, I, what I call leadership as opposed to management is finding out what is in that person that's relevant to acting on sustainability, on stewardship. Once that's out there, then it's let them, let them come up with something that motivates them. And then they're off to the races because someone, you might plant trees. Someone else might pick up litter. Someone else might, um, uh, save, um, uh, what do you call them? Dogs that are rescue dogs or something like that. Different people do different things, but for each person, the magnitude of emotion that they feel and the connection to something inside, the potential, I don't always get it. But the potential is always there. And also, I mean, now that I do more and more of these workshops, some short corporate workshops uh, where it might be just an afternoon and the, then these eight-week ones that I do with people to for them to learn how to do the Spodic Method with others, to be able to make other – give others – connect them with these intrinsic motivations and give them a way to act on them so they feel they feel grateful. They feel connected with the community. It's almost always – something about helping people and wildlife around them, sometimes far away. But it's rarely does someone come back and say, well, I, I did it out of obligation or I did it because if I didn't, then it would be really bad. It's more like they really want to. I don't know if I'm overstating if, that, if, I've, if that's accurate to how it was with you. I think that's a, a really fair categorization of, of kind of how it felt for me and and that uh it's an uncovering process of of saying hey where where did you where do you have this feeling and uh it's not just limited to trees but that is one area where i felt it and so it's something that i have some intrinsic motivation to get out there and do it and and definitely doing something locally is is powerful and then I also uh, reached out to a, a former guest who told me about one of his students who went to Madagascar, who created a nursery to reforest Madagascar and um, and uh, created this kind of uh, farm to to create trees that 70 different varieties of trees, which are now being planted all over Madagascar. And so I wanted to support that work, too. So. It's like you said, it's it's here locally, but it's also I, I felt uh, compelled to help this guy who was so bold as to kind of take his Ph.D. and kind of the shirt off his back and just and went to Madagascar and said, hey, I'm going to start this thing and and uh, reforest Madagascar. I was like, that's that's bold. I love that. <laughs> 
when I look at things going on over there, somewhere far away, I often think I want to get the people, it's usually people here, and I'm, I hope people aren't misunderstanding what I mean by there and here, but I'm speaking very loosely, but people in, in, in my culture, and I live in Manhattan, so a lot of people living very near me or working near me are making the decisions to deforest the place in the first place. I mean, people are living there, people have been living there for a long, long, long time, be it Madagascar or Africa or wherever, and, and the trees weren't being cut down. Or, and, you know, they were living somehow sustainably. I mean, people lived in the sun, I understand, for something like two, three hundred thousand years. So that they must have had some stability there. And now we're cutting the trees down. So I want to work with people here in the boardrooms of the companies that are doing things to cause these places to be chopped down, as well as this culture here, which is, I mean, Exxon doesn't buy its own products. We do. So to help people want for their own intrinsic reasons, not because they have to, although maybe that's the case, maybe there, maybe there's some stick to it, but also just that not to do things that cause the degradation in the first place. Because the Madagascarans, whatever the right term is, aren't weren't doing it. I mean, maybe they are the ones who physically chopped down the tree, but they probably weren't, someone was paying them to do it or someone was leading to that to happen. I want to work with people here. Right. They were export, they were they were exporting most of those logs to somewhere else. Well, one thing as you were talking, I was thinking about as a trial attorney, one of the concepts that has been used in in recent uh, memory as far as training trial attorneys to get to this reptilian brain, which is to communicate to jurors what what's the reason why my client's situation is meaningful to you that in making my client whole kind of makes our society better and reduces the cost to you because say punishing this company that has done my client wrong actually by you punishing them makes our world better and you benefit from it and maybe the the company pays for the recompense to my client rather than if you don't if you don't kind of award my client damages where is he going to get recovery probably from social services where that's kind of coming more from your pocket so can you can you reframe the environmental conversation to see why it is that not buying from Exxon is a good thing for for that individual yeah, that's outside my realm of of working with jurors and trying to reframe things. I mean, that sounds like stuff I do. I was saying that that's kind of how one might consider communicating to just any individual to to get them to see why it is that this is valuable to them. To me, I think of it's evoking something that's clearly there. I just have to like I don't have to reframe things. I just have to let them share, give them a space to share what's easily already there because everyone has experiences with nature. I mean, maybe there's some people, I guess increasingly there are probably people whose experience of nature is just zero because they grew up in a favela and they never got to experience, you know, clear blue skies. And But the people who are, I want, I think that 
we've created a system where, say you're the CEO of uh, McDonald's, that it's very easy to – there's a lot of stories that we tell ourselves that say the best thing you can do is, is uh, grow and grow and grow. It's a free market and um, the more trade that happens, the more good that happens in the world and ignore that the market isn't particularly free when you're polluting and the people who are being polluted don't have a say in this decision. That's not a free market as I, as I see it, as I understand it. And I can talk about these things and logic as much as I want, but ultimately there's something already there that I think they want to act on to keep the world more sustainable. They want to act in stewardship. And if I'm feeling like I have to convince them of something or reframe things, it's already there. I just have to liberate that um, something that's been suppressed and denied. Right. And create a pathway or, or let them see the pathway to liberating themselves, because that's obviously more powerful than giving them a prescription of how to do it. Yeah. And I mean, if you feel grateful, if you feel connected to community, if you get invited to parties from just the first thing that you did, and presumably with practice, you'd get more and more in touch with more core things of yourself. So the first one might might by chance have been like the best thing you could do. But I predict if you keep at it, you'll find things that are even more – that resonate with you even more. So say the CEO of Starbucks starts feeling that way. I think that will motivate that person. I'm not saying not to do other things. Ugh, I, I'm so used to – every time I say, this might work, someone's like, well, what about this? And I'm like, yeah, I know. There, I'm not saying only this. But something that no one's tapping into is I think that if that person feels connected to nature through personal experience – then they're more likely to act to preserve those things than if it's just an abstract thing, like you cut down your carbon emissions. Yeah, absolutely. I think every step that further connects us to nature and we start to see the multitude of ways that we're affecting our environment, it's not just one way. Um, there, there are hundreds or thousands of things that we do every day that that affect the environment. So how can we start uh, taking some, some actions that, that change that effect or lessen that effect? How can we connect with the deepest motivations that will guide those actions? It's, I, the actions are what people see, but it's, I think it's the connection to the redwoods and that experience that drives it. In your case, I don't know what it'll be when I'm just talking with the CEO of of uh, Monsanto. Uh, do you have any conversations with uh, the Monsanto people uh, <laughs> on tap or just uh, putting it out there in the universe? Not yet, but I really, I mean, I know that, I know that people tell me that we have a system that selects for psychopaths and the way to reach the top of a public traded company in the Fortune 500 is that you have to be a psychopath and not care about other things. And maybe there are people like that. And maybe most people are like that. People discourage me from this path, but I am confident that I'll meet a few CEOs who are not psychopaths and who want to act. And right now they feel like that would be sticking their necks out because they get judged and people are like, oh, you're just greenwashing or you're not authentic. But I think that the Spodic method gives them a chance to connect with something that's deep inside them that 
will be the fastest, most effective way for them to act effectively, genuinely, and authentically so that people see that they're not just faking it. And maybe they're not doing the best thing first, but they're doing whatever they can, whatever makes sense. And I think people listening will say, if it's if it's publicly done, I mean, I can also work with people privately, and I've I've definitely worked with CEOs who are like, don't make this. You know, if we go public with this, if you record this, we got to get the lawyers in, and then they'll never prove it. So I got to work privately with some people, but I know that there are going to be people who feel like you do. They're going to feel grateful that they did this. They're going to want to do more, and they're going to want to figure out how they can use their company, not to just be more efficient. Because if you make a polluting system more efficient, you generally become you generally pollute more efficiently. Even if you lower pollution in one area, you know the savings gets. They're not giving that away. They, they use that to further the mission, and the mission is not sustainability. If it's say, I don't know, uh, Tyson Meats or someplace like that. But I think that working with them, I think that I'm going to reach a couple who are going to be, well, like Robert Carter III is a big role model for me. Robert Carter III in 1791 was the person who, that's when he started moving to free something like 500 slaves. This is you know, well before the um, Civil War. I think he's the American who freed the most number of slaves before the Civil War. And he, his neighbors are angry at him. And he had to wait for laws to change in order to do it. But he did what he believed was right. It wasn't good for business. It wasn't good for the bottom line. But he didn't suffer either. And I think he felt he was doing the right thing. And I really wish more people, I, man, he was a Virginia, I believe he was a Virginia slaveholder. And I think he knew Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, one of the great leaders of freedom. I mean, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, but he did not free his slaves. Yeah. And I think that he, I imagine what, if the president of the United States had freed his slaves, what that would have added to his message of freedom, how much more might there not have had to be in the Civil War? Because maybe a couple more states would have been free states. I mean, this is all speculative, but what I'm trying to talk about is, is that a few people changing when they're at leverage points of systems for their own intrinsic reasons, when it's effective, authentic, genuine. So people aren't like, what's the, what's the angle here? Because when they share where it's coming from, I think people at home would say, okay, anyone listening, I think, could hear you talking about the Redwoods and think, okay, maybe they haven't been, I've never been there, but I, I've seen pictures of Big Sur and I've certainly been among trees and it tapped into something. So I think people hearing someone sharing where it's coming from, then when they hear them acting, if even if the acting that they do is not the most effective thing, they still see that, okay, they're starting where they are. Where else can they start? Well, I, uh, I think it's, it's a great way to look at it. And um, as a student of the Tao Te Ching, there, there's a part which says essentially not judging any person is kind of good or bad. And that at any time, people are capable of great transformation. And so I think what you're essentially saying is, hey, you're looking at those corporate chieftains as possible, that they could be capable of great transformation at any moment. And I think that's a kind of a beautiful way to, to look at anybody in any circumstance. They're we are all capable of that. And I think to kind of maybe look 
give them a path to redemption versus saying, hey, you're kind of doomed to hell and there's no there's no way out for you. There's nothing that you can do. Uh, and I think that kind of what you're talking about with Ro- Robert Carter III is like there was a path to some redemption. Let's give them the path to take it and say, hey, turn this thing around. It isn't too late if you if you make the right moves. I think people want to do it, not just that there's a path, like they, they want to do it. They're craving it. And not, I mean, I think everyone, no, I, I mean, the idea of polluting and doing to others as you would have them doing to you do not, they, they don't work together. And polluting and leave, live and let live or leave it better than you found it, stewardship, they don't work together. And I think people would prefer stewardship over polluting if they, yeah, had a path. If I think we have very few role models moving in that direction. There, I mean, Taylor Swift, I'm sure you've read about her flying or Elon Musk or um, uh, the Kardashians. They fly like, they take like 17-minute flights. And these are the role models of like the, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think people really want some way that they can flip and realize that it's not going back to the stone age. It doesn't mean you have to give up innovation and national security. In fact, it increases those things, health and longevity and time with family and community. We tell ourselves, I think we project our fears onto what we are afraid to do so that we can feel good about not doing those things. But I think, I think people get inside that you don't need to pollute to innovate to be healthy. Well, we just have to think more creatively. So it there's a certain mindset that got us to this place. And the certain mindset was essentially GNP should always be ever increasing and a corporation should be ever increasing revenues and profits and uh, helping shareholders as opposed to being a citizen of their community and, and making it a a better place as as any citizen would do uh as citizens united said uh, corporations are people and have the rights of people well then they also should have the responsibilities of people so what do you think about growth and gnp should always grow how does that i mean do you how do you feel about those ideas I think it's archaic. I think it was something that was invented a few hundred years ago, essentially. It it probably is related to a bit of a warlike mentality, because as we're seeing, the the country with the most economic power kind of also has usually the most military power. So there is a kind of a, a, a parallel between those two tracks. And it's a fear-based thing that we've just got to keep growing because we have to maintain kind of our ability to um, stand up to our enemies. So I am, I think that it's, it's um, kind of the pathway that humans evolved for survival, but it's not serving us anymore. How do you feel about if our economy didn't grow or shrank deliberately, not accidentally, but deliberately, if, if, if we wanted to do that. 
I think we could do it in a way that would still be manageable because we still have tons of wealth. It's not that we don't have enough wealth. I think it's not particularly well distributed, but our our country has enough uh, food for everybody to eat very well. Our country has enough, uh, you know, kind of tools in order to make our life very comfortable in so many different ways. And I think that we could retool the polluting industries to be done in a way that that are not polluting. It's going to take a tremendous amount of creativity and investment, but it is possible to do that. Are, are there some industries that are just lost, like they, they, they just purely pollute? That's a good question. I, I think that uh, there there's a guy that I've uh, interviewed who's who's uh, technology is being used to to create um, cement in a carbon neutral way and and take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into these these bricks or into this cement. Uh, and so even things like that could be done in a in a carbon neutral way. So I think the sky's the limit in that respect. I guess I'm thinking like are there buggy are the equivalent are there the equivalent of buggy whip manufacturers? Uh probably there are. It's it's hard to say at this standpoint. I think technology is moving so quickly that we may have fuels that can fuel aircraft that are that are actually not polluting like hydrogen and do the same for the shipping industry and do the same for the rail and and for cars so i think that if we created an abundant hydrogen economy it certainly would be far less polluting than the one we have let's say that that was possible and even within our lifetimes Here's something I say a lot is that I think the worst way to get there is to continue flying with jet fuel. I mean, the more we fly with jet fuel, the more we use container ships that use bunker fuel and so forth, the the longer it will take for those things to happen. If we want them to come, I think we've, I think the fastest, most effective way would be to ground jet fuel jets now. Well, all right, let's say this uh, a bit of triage. So maybe flights that are necessary for things like national security or um, I don't know, like, but how about, how about this is that we create a government mandate, say as California did to reduce the amount of, of cars that are powered by um, combustion engines. And, and then you're taking it down at a, at a manageable pace so that industry can achieve those goals and and make them aggressive and it and it happens well we'd have to lump it seems to me that we'd have to lump in not just carbon but all pollution because it's so easy to knock out if you knock out carbon you just ramp up other things and if which would be great if they didn't pollute but if they do pollute then it's whack-a-mole yeah i think that that makes sense that you to to make it Fair, and that's where probably doing it in a tax under the tax code is maybe the most efficient way because you just tax pollution at the rate that it 
that actually causes harm. So the most harmful forms of pollution, like maybe methane, which is even more damaging than CO2, tax that at 10 times the rate of CO2. Can you imagine a world with zero pollution? Let's say negligible, really, I mean, like close to zero, maybe a few hospital, like saving live things, but we're, the average person doesn't pollute. That isn't something I've really contemplated uh, prior to your asking the question. So I, <laughs> I can start imagining it. It's uh, it is a bit mind blowing because, quite frankly, I think probably my entire life has been um, unconscious to that potential. E- you know, even somebody who's wanted us to be more environmentally safe and have a a healthier environment, it's almost beyond conception that we would have zero pollution. That's roughly what most people answer. I've been been asking that question of a lot of people, although not so much on this podcast, interestingly. And uh, it's funny because most people can't imagine it. The whole world didn't pollute for... Humans have been around for 300,000 years and up until roughly a couple centuries ago, it depends on how you define pollution. I don't include things like poop or exhalation, things that existed before humans did. I mean, there were forest fires before humans, lightning strikes. So I don't count those as pollution. Now, if someone lights up a a forest or chops it down, that's another story. Uh, That's more depletion than pollution. But the world was mostly not polluting. And one could, depending on how you define things, completely non-polluting for most of human history, and now we can't imagine it. I think a lot of people then, if I say, if I say, so if I say, like, can't, try to imagine it. Like, force yourself, if you don't mind. I don't, I don't mean to force people to do things they don't want to do. Yeah, I'm, I don't feel forced. I feel encouraged, uh, and it's and it's a challenging exercise, though. I'm um, I'm thinking about it and thinking. Say, like, um, there was somebody I interviewed recently, um, Tony Hiss, who wrote a book called Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half of the Land to Heal the Earth. And uh, so I I kind of took a step in that direction by imagining half of the world protected. And, and And I took that step. You're asking me to go a step further, which is protect the entire planet. And, um... That's, you know, it's a beautiful world. I mean, it's it's certainly something, some place that I would feel like would be a place to leave the next generations. That's a worthy goal to to clean up our planet. It's it's the least we could do, right? Yeah, uh, I, I I think it's a, it's a pretty big thing for for us today. For us to all stop polluting would be, I'm thinking of the least we could do. I mean, it was a big, it would be hard for many people because of our culture. I mean, it's not hard to live sustainably. It is hard to live sustainably when everyone around you is not living sustainably. And you have a whole system that's designed without sustainability or stewardship in it. But I I do like, I wish a lot of people felt like the least we could do is all stop polluting. Because I think, I mean, it took me a while to get there, but I can certainly imagine a beautiful world that way. 
Well, I think it goes back to the spiritual principle that you referred to earlier, which is doing to others is, and, and essentially any form of pollution is, is a violation of that principle. So um, it, it's goes back to kind of first principles, but because we've been acculturated into polluting just massively, we don't like to address it. And I think the challenging thing that kind of you are to, to all of us is kind of holding the mirror up and saying, Hey, look at, look at how much we're polluting. Like, let's not be unconscious to that anymore. Let's be conscious to what it would take to not pollute. Um, and that's a, that's a very valuable, but yet very challenging message. I guess I may feel like I'm putting the mirror up and maybe I'm doing some of that, but what I'm really trying to do is connect back to, is to open up, make that connection uh, for, for people to think about it. And no one's doing it because if you don't reveal, if, if people can't imagine something and you ask them to go there, I mean, the way I often put it is if someone can't imagine a world in which no one pollutes and a lot of people, if I ask them to try to think about it, a lot of them start thinking, well, my mom lives on the opposite coast. I, I don't want to never see my mom again. So if I say to that person, avoid straws, they might avoid straws, especially if they saw the turtle video, but they might also think, All right, that, that's one step. That sounds okay, but I know where that path goes and it goes to, I'm never going to see my mom again. So I'm, I think if someone feels... Or sometimes they'll feel like it'll be a breakdown of society and we'll have back to the stone age and 30 will be old age and they'll die young and things like that. And then I think they think I'm not going to – they'll sabotage efforts beyond superficial things that don't really make a difference. They might talk game, but good game, but they won't – I think that they, they'll, they'll want – well – I want to look like I'm taking steps, but I don't actually want to go very far because I don't want to lose hospitals and fire stations and things that they think depend on polluting. And I think if we don't if we don't unearth that, then I think people will do it subconsciously, not even realizing that they're doing it. And when I say people, not just individuals, but as a culture, I think we're doing that. We're saying we want sustainability while we're actually at the same time preventing it from happening. Well, it's, it is an awakening of consciousness and, um, you know, there's a very large percentage of our society, which doesn't even acknowledge that it's really even happening, that, that we're having an ecological disaster. Um, so that's, that is part of the problem. And so, you, you know, part, I think you're talking about people that, are even more awake to to the fact of the the real danger. So um, there's all kind of a gradation of levels of consciousness on this issue. And I think kind of finding a pathway, I was talking to David Fenton, who's a PR specialist yesterday, and and he was talking about having two thirds of hope and one third of fear that there has to be some hope that what we're doing can work. 
uh, but also some fear that if we don't do anything, we're going to have a disaster on our hands. So kind of balancing those those two things. So how's this conversation been for you? If you don't mind my asking. I think it's a fascinating conversation. I think it's a challenging conversation to to look at my kind of own actions in in the world. And I think um, I, one of the things that has happened since I started talking with you was I took the train from Chicago to to Denver to go out and um, see my aunt and and uh, cousin as well as to go to a wedding. Uh, out in Aspen. And uh, that was the first, that was the longest train ride ever been on. It was an 18 hour train ride. And uh, taking the train was not something that was part of my consciousness. Not that I was quote anti-train, but just wasn't something, if you had to go a thousand miles, it just never seemed like, oh, that's the way to go. But I actually enjoyed the train ride quite a bit. And kind of looking forward to doing the next one. And I think, as I recall, the the amount of um, kind of carbon emissions per passenger is 10 times less taking the train or even more than 10 times less than uh, taking a plane. How, what, can you walk me through the steps of how you made that decision? Well, I think it was we had talked about you're not flying and, and how you got around and said that you took the train some. And so I had, had talked to other people about taking the train and I had actually talked to uh, my producer for my radio show and podcast to, to get the head of Amtrak on the show. And so we had been bouncing this idea around for quite some time and, He's a big, my, my friend is a big train buff. So he was encouraging me to kind of take the train more. So it's, it's just similar to the planting the tree that uh, you and others kind of planted the seed. And then I, uh, I finally took that first step. And now I'm, I'm uh, kind of a train evangelist. <laughs> It's so funny the way you're talking because when I talk to a lot of people, they're like, one person's actions don't matter and why bother? And you're just spitting in the wind. But you can't lead people to live by values you live the opposite of. Or the flip side is if you do it, you can find the joy in it. I mean, you said you enjoyed it. Did I, did I, did I hear that right? Oh, yeah, I thought it was a great experience. I'm, I'm kind of uh, looking forward to taking my next train adventure. How did how did all of what we've all the actions with the planting the trains how's it affected your relationships with others? I mean that's that's a harder calculus to to determine because, but I, I would say that it it does connect me more to um, to people. I, I got to have some marvelous conversations with people on the train that I'm sure I never would have met, and. That was a fascinating piece of it. I think it does, maybe it's a little bit of street cred. You start walking the walk a little bit more as somebody who's environmentalist. The more that I can 
do that, then that maybe makes me a more authentic leader in this space versus somebody who's just mouthing off about it. A lot of people tell me that, but if I fly, I can get more done. Therefore, I should keep flying because I'm doing good. I don't think that's the case. I mean, I felt like I I got a lot of work done or, you know, so there was there was downtime to do some work. If I wanted to do work, I didn't really lose much in that transition. Um, it, I slept on the train. So it, it was part of the vacation slash uh, work experience. I mean, it was fairly seamless. I didn't feel like I lost any time as a result of it, which I would have going into the experience. Yeah, there was, there is this sense of I could do it faster with a, with a, a plane, but I'm not sure that it really alters my productivity at all. Is this a microcosm of a, I, I'm hearing a microcosm of a bigger cultural difference in terms of culture in general about how much, like, it seems making things an industry, say, more efficient seems like, well, that should reduce waste. But if our cultural values aren't toward reducing waste, aren't toward like stewardship doing to others, it feels like, I mean, what I often say is if you make a polluting system more efficient, you pollute more efficiently. Whereas if you change the system, then you have a chance of, like, am I reading a different system going on, different cultural, different values taking root? Maybe not taking root, but manifesting. Well, I would say what comes to my mind is going slow and that going slower actually produced more beautiful experience than going fast. I enjoyed that train ride more than I can recall enjoying any kind of flight that I've taken. And I got as much done as I've gotten done. I didn't feel like I missed a beat in terms of... um productivity, work, or the stuff that I'm working on. So I didn't lose anything. It's it's like we're sold on going faster is going to make it better. And I think maybe that's, you know, the reverse might actually be true. Going slower might actually make it better. I really want to talk to you in six months or a year and hear how it develops whether we keep in touch or not in the, in the interviewing time, which I hope we do, to hear how this... Because I, I, I hear someone with a different trajectory and you've only taken a few steps. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the, the challenge or to, to look at the world in a different way. And, and I think that obviously we're all going to have to look at the world in a different way to solve our climate problems. Well, now I want to vote for you for president. Ah. <laughs> I thought you were going to run for president. What happened to that? I can't say too much, but I didn't tell you the whole thing that uh, a friend of mine who's been a guest on the podcast, someone you might know, and I'll, he hasn't publicly announced yet, so I can't say anything yet. But he was thinking about running for president. And I mentioned within his group that people have been talking to me about, about um, running for some office. So I ended up participating in a few debates. And when I say debates, it was like 10 people on a on a, a video chat. So nothing big, but I was preparing for it. And your words, 
you haven't lived until you've run for president was such a big encouragement for me. And so I did participate in a few debates where people would ask about policies, about environmental things. And uh, I hope that when, assuming he publicly announces at some point that I can share some of what happened because it was really exciting. And uh, so I hope to help him and possibly be involved in other ways. And I'm increasingly open to running for office in some in some way, something I've never thought of before in my life. I've, I've never been elected to class office or anything like that. But I do want to talk to you more about that. But so far, it's I can't really say that much. Right. I, I think that it's an opportunity to confront, for me, fears of what would happen and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was an opportunity to really talk to people and and c- communicate some ideas that were important to me and uh, see that there were lots of other people who felt similarly. Um, and in terms of complaining about our government, if we are not willing to engage and take the steps to uh, make it better, which means potentially running for office or definitely supporting others that we we you know believe in their message, uh, then we really don't have much room to complain because we're not we're not taking the risk and taking the chances to step up into the arena ourselves or um, helping our friends do the same. Well, my role models in this area of cultural change tended to come from outside government, Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King. I will, I will stop you there and that all of those had a very strong governmental uh, component to, to each one of those uh, movements, right? Yeah, they didn't run for office, though. They didn't run for office. I mean, or- Mandela did become president. But something in any case, something that you don't have to say what you're going to say next. Uh, sorry to cut you off. But then learning about Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, FDR, then I started seeing change, cultural change. I, I just hadn't thought about it. I mean, Lincoln being the big one of changing culture from government. So that opened me up to potential that I hadn't, I just hadn't looked at before. Yeah, I think it is. The potential is there. And I think that uh, your voice would be a very good one to have as part of the conversation because uh, nobody else is kind of delivering that message. And I think that you're very eloquent and, uh, and would you probably get some, some good coverage, press coverage and uh, get your message out even more widely. So it's, it's not necessarily about the winning it's like, and, and who knows, I mean, you might win, but I don't think the point is, necessarily kind of from a Taoist perspective, winning or losing isn't necessarily the game. It's it's you putting yourself out there as best you can. For the time being, I'm focused on, focusing on the book. And I think when I met um, Andrew Yang before he announced, and then when he announced, I read his book and his book meant a lot to me. It wasn't like, like Thoreau, not that much, but it. Um, but I feel like a, a book is a good start for me. It was what I was doing anyway, and to get a, a strong message out that way of a platform, or if it's to be a platform, to have that 
you know, share where I'm coming from. Yeah, that's a kind of a traditional starting point is to have the book and then the book kind of is the launch pad for the next step. So I, I endorse the book and <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm excited to see it. When, when's the book coming out? Tough to say because I haven't signed the published contract yet. And I mean, if we jammed on as fast as possible and got every lucky break we could possibly by the end of this calendar year within 2023, but more, I mean, typically it would be a year from now. So I'll see how fast we can get it out. Of course, the marketing starts before then and writing the op-eds and appearing on lots of other podcasts and things like that. That'll start before that. So I hope the message starts coming up before, well before the book does. Well, it seems like the message is coming out now. So. Yep. I think out of the 330 million Americans, most of them haven't heard of me yet. And most of them haven't started feeling like, huh, maybe the train makes more sense than the plane. Well, it, so I got a long way to go. You know, you got a ways to go, but your journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So you, you're you're well off uh, the starting gun. So, well, also I've been looking at the guests that you've had on your podcast because uh, Tony Hiss was on here too, and you've had some really great guests. So I'm taking that as a compliment, a big compliment, because of all the people you've spoken with. Ah, well, I, I appreciate. Uh, you know, where you're coming from. And I think that you've got a, a great voice in in this environmental conversation and, and shifting the conversation and, and challenging people everywhere along the spectrum. I think it's valuable to hear this conversation because it may not change people instantly, but once they hear it, uh, it's kind of maybe fertilizes the ground for uh, the next person, the next seed that comes along because they start to think, oh, what would that be like? They start to imagine what a world would be like without pollution. Um, they start thinking about uh, doing to others as you would do, you know, have, have them doing to you. And I think that's a, a brilliant way to frame pollution and talking about pollution and and um this guy david fenton's talking about it talking talking about a pollution blanket as as a way to communicate the problem in a way that people get it and i think that kind of in conjunction with um the very you know ethical concept of doing to others those things are, those are super powerful. Well, I don't want to get in too much of a mutual appreciation fest here, but you're running for office really, I mean, I hope I'm not saying this wrong, but you're like a regular guy and you did it and you, that opened up, that opened things up for me beyond because I, I talked to you and I haven't talked to Lincoln. Uh, and then, you know, I'm not so sanguine about hydrogen, but you're doing it. You got the car. And not everyone does. I mean, you, so you're doing things too. So uh, not to get too much mutual appreciation, 
but I mutually appreciate it. Right. Well, I think that it's it's about the average guy doing it. And I, I felt like, hey, all of us as citizens have the ability to have our voices be heard. And one of the things is we get to run for office and it uh, and that's a beautiful thing about our country is is anybody can throw their hat into the ring and and make a go of it. Well, I propose you pick up here next time. Okay, sounds like a plan. Anything to close with from your end that we might have missed? Uh, no, I think that uh, we covered a lot of ground. I appreciate, uh, you know, your your encouragement, and I'm a I'm a big Lincoln fan. My, I guess, uh, great great grandparents shared a pasture with Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois, and old family lore has it that they borrowed a copper pot from my uh, great grandparents because um, he was a a Cooper. So I feel a great connection to Lincoln and feel that he is, is definitely a big hero for me. Yeah. Well, Matt Mattern, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Great to be on this program. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future. Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.